Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Say Who Say Pod. He's Danny O'Neill. I'm Christian Capel. He's got he's got his finger over the over the clicker. Let's go. Pod. 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 You know, um, I'm not positive, but the team may be chanting that in the gif that Kalen DeBoer That's tweets what out. I was going to ask you when he does commitment. It, it, instead of the woof, he does a he posts a gif of everybody going nuts in the locker room, right? Yeah, and they all kind of come in and say, "Hey, maybe, maybe it's a, maybe it's an homage." Um, the Huskies have ten times as many commitments. In their 2024 class as, as when we last recorded. How about Before that? we get into what it, the caliber of players in that type, I have one question. Is it possible that Washington knew a number of these kids were going to commit and instead of getting a commitment, say in mid-June or a couple weeks before, they're like, just just hold off. So we have them all come at once. So there's a big explosion of enthusiasm and energy. Is it possible that that happened? I think there's some element of that. I mean, there's certainly some element of that because I think all those kids, or at least the vast majority of them, indicated on their visit, you know, probably committed to the staff on their visit. And it was, okay, but don't announce it now. We'll time it out. We'll roll them out over the next couple of days. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, I, I kind of feel like you don't want a kid to publicly commit before his visit. You know, I think you oh, want really? him to be... I think you want him to be really sure. Um, not in every case. Now, if you know, like Pocky Fina was just ready, right in in early May, like he knew it was Washington. He was, and I, I think as a coaching staff, you you especially if you've done this long enough, you get a good feel for like, okay, who's who wants to commit to us because they're just on a high off of a great conversation or they haven't heard from this school or that school in a while. But I kind of know that if that school really pushes you, that kid's going to end up there and who wants to commit without visiting because one, because they've been there unofficially, right? I mean, kids take so many unofficial visits these days, but you know, I can just tell like through our relationship building with him, getting to know his family, getting to know what he's about. Like, yeah, he's just, he's done and he's convinced and he doesn't need to, he doesn't need the official visit treatment to sell him. Like, so yeah, I think you take that kid's commitment, but I do think that there's probably, you know, the guys who are taking other visits and checking out Texas, Michigan state, Utah, Arizona, Oregon state. Those are kind of the, some of the schools percolating. Um, I don't think you want them like pulling the trigger to Washington, and then going and taking visits to other schools and then to, to UW. Like, I think it's just sort of weird timing that way. I'd never thought about that, but that's actually like really, I mean, that, that makes a lot of sense that as a program, like you don't want to do everything you can to get a kid to say yes and then have him change his mind two weeks later. Like you want to do everything you can to make him say yes and mean it. And you, it actually is kind of counterproductive to get him over the threshold if he's then going to end up taking a few steps back because you don't like decommitting is something that however much, I don't know how much it matters, but it certainly doesn't look good. Like it's not a positive for any program to have kids decommitting. Yeah. And you could say like, well, aren't you just at the same point 
aren't you just back at square one? He he wasn't committed to you before. Right. What's the difference? But I think there's a big difference. I think if a kid decommits to a school, it's way less likely he's going to end up there than if he'd never committed in the first place. Because I think there is like, even if you decommit just to go through the process and not because they dropped you or they took another kid at your position who's better or other schools started pushing harder, but just like, you know what? I decided too early. I want to take other visits. I think there's, even if subconsciously, there'd, there'd be kind of a pride factor in the end. Like, well, do I really want to circle back to the school I decommitted from? Gee, like I would, that would kind of make me look bad, you know? So I think decomm- like a kid decommitting is you're, you basically lost him for good. Even if he says, yeah, why? Well, like I'm, I'm still leaving myself open to Washington. They're still going to continue to recruit me. And that's happened before, you know, Jacoby Covington decommitted uh, for a minute and then wound up you know, circling back and committing to Washington. It's not like it's unheard of, but um, I, it, Chris Peterson would flat out like told kids who wanted to commit no sometimes. Because really? He, yeah. <laughs> He's like, because you he need just, to wait? Because he just knew that, uh, well, like, uh, when Cooper Patagna was on with us, the prospect he was telling us about that he kind of stood on a table for, um, I think that particular prospect wanted to to give them a commitment and and peterson was like proud of that i mean he'd say publicly like yeah we've we've slowed kids down we've told them no wait and it's because of what i was saying earlier like because chris peterson's been around long enough he could he could look at certain kids and go ah that's not gonna stick i i know that kid's not done i know i know he's i you know i this is early on and and he's feeling a certain way because of like some positive momentum which is great for washington but I'm not taking that kid's commitment till I know he's sure because that's going to screw up our board down the road if he decommits from us. So that that was that was a thing. I don't know if that's if Caitlin DeBoer is as, as strict that way, but uh-huh. um, there's all yeah all kinds of different different strategery behind the scenes. Now, when you mentioned Cooper, that's the wide receiver that he was talking to us about. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, I would like to point out one thing, and this has nothing to do with the coaches. What's remarkable among the recruiting enthusiasts of the fan base is that any kid that decommits becomes a little bit worse than they than, than he was regarded to be. Like he's three stars, but it was kind of a stretch. And any kid once he commits mm-hmm. becomes oh he's he's a little bit underrated. Like he's a three star, but he's really more like a four star player. Like it is an amazing. It's amazing how consistently. Um, their status changes with regard to their commitment level to the school. It flows directly from the "we didn't want him anyway." Uh, <laughs> three of talk. He goes. He goes from being a potential riser to a. Uh, oh yeah, they didn't. I don't think they really wanted him. I don't think they really wanted that guy. But that does happen. All right. Yeah. All right, Christian, you need to you need to give me some broad strokes here. I'm the recruiting ignoramus. I I know vaguely some of the names. Who do I, who do I, who should I be excited about right now? Well, uh, if you just want to look at the, at the rankings, one of these nine commitments they've gotten in the last, uh, since Saturday morning is a four star recruit, Jason Robinson, a five foot 11, 165 pound receiver from Long Beach Poly high school. Ooh, the Jackrabbits. Um, That is a, that is a school with a lot of pedigree. mm -hmm. Uh, limited to eight games by injury i believe so his numbers weren't huge but if you watch his highlights you can see why he had a bunch of offers he was committed to usc at one time um explosive athlete very quick um i I, he he 
reaches top speed quickly. He accelerates well. Um, I think he probably is is going to give them something in the slot uh, as 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 a smaller you know receiver being sort of on the smaller side that um, maybe they don't totally have right now, which is weird to say because they line up Jalen McMillan in the slot a lot. But Jalen mm-hmm. McMillan's basically like an outside receiver playing in the slot when they play him inside. He's just he's just that versatile and that good. But um, I think he'll he'll add a new element to their offense if he if he develops and grows and um, ends up you know ends up being the guy that that they think he is. Uh, another receiver they signed, Justice Williams, I think is a really interesting prospect. He is the son of Roland Williams, longtime mm-hmm. Oakland Raiders tight end, won a Super Bowl um, out of Oaks Christian High School, another great program. Their head coach is Charles Collins, who coached mm-hmm. Chad Johnson and Steve Smith at Santa Monica College. <laughs> I've talked to him day. before. I've yeah, talked and, to him before. Was a, was a receivers coach in the NFL, played a... Played in the, in the CFL, I want to say. No kidding. So yeah. that was always amazing to me that that Ocho Cinco and Steve Smith played on the same junior college team, and Incredible. I think their mascot is the Corsairs, which is a phenomenal mascot, like mm-hmm. absolutely great, like the World War II plane with sort of the distinctive little curved wings. Um, okay, I could get behind that. So Justice so, Williams is a receiver, plays for the guy who coached Steve Smith and, and Ocho Cinco in junior college. Yeah. He's six four, um, uh-huh. moves really well. Now again, like coaches are evaluating actual film. Uh, those of us who just watch the huddle highlights, you're only watching their best plays. You're only watching the plays that they want everyone to see. So that's always the caveat when we say tape or film. It's really just highlights. Um, but you certainly see him pull away from high school DBs, and he just he's a he he moves naturally, right? He's not a he's not a six four guy who's like. Oh, this guy! This guy's clearly going to be like a college tight end, but he plays receiver in high school because it's high school. Um, he he moves like a receiver. He runs like a receiver. He's really smooth. Um, not rated as high. He had a big junior year. They expect a lot of things out of him as a senior. I know um, Charles Collins in, in a story I I published on at onmontlake.com yesterday afternoon, Tuesday afternoon. There's some some insight in there from him. He he worked individually with him. Kind of took it on himself to work individually with him over the summer, going into his, his junior year. He'd kind of flash some toward the end of his sophomore season, and I think they'd kind of identified him as a guy who could really take a big step for them. So um, put in a lot of work with a guy who's who's worked with some really good uh, NFL receivers, and um, the, his junior year stats and highlights kind of kind of back that up. Um, I think his other visit was to Utah, if I remember correctly. He's another one. I mean, the the, the theme of these commitments is there's a a good three or four guys who you watch on tape and kind of think, wow, like there's a there's a big gap between this guy's ranking and the number of schools that have offered him a scholarship and what I'm seeing on the highlights. And I mm-hmm. I think Justice Williams is one of those guys. I mean, he's he's it, it's it's you know, maybe, maybe I'm there's something there that I'm not seeing, or I'm seeing something that's not there because, like, a six four receiver whose dad played in the NFL, who plays at Oaks Christian High School, like, there's no way that that guy's just flying under the radar, right? Like, he's he's been evaluated. People know who he is. It's not like he's gotten lost in the shuffle. So um, maybe there's there's people smarter than me at those things who are seeing something that I'm not. But I watch him and think, yeah, I can see why Jamarcus Shepard and and. Kalen DeBoer, Ryan Grubb would have prioritized him at receiver. Um, 
really interesting prospect to me and the the classic example of it's it's hard to judge because he was so much better than everyone he played against his highlights are like silly is Ratumana Bula Balavu out of Army and Navy Academy in Carlsbad, California, a school I'd never heard of, but it is it is a boys military boarding school on the beach in Carlsbad. And they play in the CIF San Diego section. So they're not playing against the the LA schools. They're playing against they're playing in the San Diego section. Their league is all I think similarly kind of like academy or private schools. Um, he had 23 sacks as a junior, 30 tackles for loss. I believe he had over 100 tackles total. I want to say he mostly lined up at edge rusher, and his recruiting profile lists him as an edge rusher. I think he's going to play on the interior at Washington. He's a big dude. I mean, he's... Yeah, 6'5", he, 260, I think. Yeah, 265. He's he's big. He's big for an edge edge guy. I I was interested to see where where he might project cuz that was honestly that was the first place my my eyes go in the recruiting list is to look at defensive linemen and potential edge rushers. Yeah. Um I I think he, he looks pretty athletic, so you know, who knows? I I think they've they've ID'd him as an interior guy. I mean, and okay, Brechterfield recruited him, right? So you know, the, the D-line coach recruited him for a reason. I think he's going to end up um, playing inside. Did get a commitment from an edge rusher in this wave, Noah Carter, um, out of Centennial High in Peoria, Arizona, same school as Dom Hampton. Um, kind of in the Lance Holtzclaw mold. He's listed at 6'3", 220, I want to say, maybe 225 without looking at it. And, yeah, kind of a, a, a leaner, you know, speed guy. He plays receiver. He was his team's leading receiver. His, he's got receiver highlights on his on his huddle film. Um, he you know seems like a, a a pretty athletic guy playing that position. I would imagine they'd want him to bulk up some, but uh, might be one to watch a couple years down the road. It's interesting. I mean, they you can tell at edge they kind of they go after some guys who are a little bit leaner, you know, a little bit little bit lighter, um, who are you know, can play receiver or tight end for their high school team. And then they go after some guys who are maybe more on the, the borderline between edge and, and D tackle. So uh, a couple of those still on the board also. Um, I, I've i been interested in uh, Dermarcus Davis, the quarterback in this class now. EJ Kamenong decommitted. He, he recently committed to Cal. I think they were going to take Dermarcus Davis regardless. Um, not positive who initiated the uh, the breakup, so to speak, between UW and Kamenong. But I know that you know, they'd, they'd already offered Demarcus Davis, I think had plans to bring him to campus um, anyway, and, and would have been would have taken two quarterbacks in that class, I, I want to say. Um, big arm, 6'4". Uh, he hasn't played a ton. He, he just had his first year starting at Etiwanda High School in, in Rancho Cucamonga um, as a junior. Sat behind Malik Murphy star quarterback who went to Texas uh, as a sophomore at, at Sarah High School in Gardena, California. So he's one. It's easy to make the comparison to Aiden Childs, who is the quarterback who signed with Oregon State in the 2023 class. He was a downy in L.A., hadn't played a lot, blew up, had a huge year. He was a three-star when Washington offered him, three-star when he committed to Oregon State, shot up the rankings, wound up being a four-star, had an amazing first spring in Corvallis. Um 
if this guy follows that trajectory, Washington would be would be very pleased. Um, maybe it's it's silly to compare the two, but you know, again, a guy who didn't play a ton uh, at the quarterback the quarterback position. <laughs> Didn't play a ton uh, his first two years of high school. Had a, had a, a nice junior year. Um, I think could rise rise up the rankings even more with a big senior year. Um, so I think they they like him. He's not a you know he's not a runner really. Athletic enough to buy some time in the pocket and move around some. But you know he's he's very much a, a pocket passer, downfield thrower um, that that they want in this this offensive system. So um, beat out Oregon State and Arizona for him. Those are the guys who. You know that could go on. Like Omar Khan, this D tackle from Bridgeland High School in Cypress, Texas, six uh, five and like two seventy five. Didn't put up big numbers as a junior. Um, Max Preps had him with like seven tackles, and you know sometimes that's maybe they're missing some games or the stats are weird or whatever. But you know he's an interior D lineman. He's not a guy who's going to put up huge numbers necessarily. Has 22 offers, something like that. Has an offer from USC and Utah. And yeah, I think a guy who likes schools, his high school coach kind of told me that schools became more interested in him when they were able to, to come out and see him um, at spring practices and see him in person and how he moves. He's a wrestler. So, uh, you know, again, a longer athletic guy at that size probably has a long way to go um, just in terms of, you know, learning how to use all of his tools and, you know, use all of all of those those natural abilities um, to play D line at the college level, but an intriguing prospect who you know again big gap between the number of schools who have offered him and his ranking. Um, so who knows? I feel like it's it's kind of a every year there's there's sort of the if you if you get a, a bunch of commitments from a bunch of three star guys there's there's always a group of fans who are like oh like they're all they're gonna rise all those guys are gonna rise mm-hmm. he's gonna be a four star by the end and like, yep. It pretty much never happens. Like there, you know, maybe one or two guys shoot up a little bit, but he's one. Like being in Texas, there's just there's so many dudes in Texas. There's so many prospects in Texas. He's one. Like I wonder now that he's committed to Washington, because he got committed to a Power Five school. If he has a big senior year, or if he makes a big leap his senior year, I'd be, be curious to see uh, kind of what the what the rankings folks do with him. There's just there's a lot of a lot of Power Five bound prospects in that state to keep track of. Watching how recruiting sort of stacks up and how you start putting together. The other thing I start doing is looking at within the state and where the top prospects are going to go. And you have one of the of the top top high school guys from this class already going to Michigan, right? And Hogan Hansen, he's from Bellevue, a tight end. Mm-hmm. The other guys is is watch. Are there other guys that I should be watching for? To see if they end up at Washington, Braden Platt is a is a linebacker at Yelm. There's a couple players from from O'Day, uh, a running back, um, a, a lineman, interior offensive lineman. Uh, who who else should I be looking for here? Yeah, I mean it's it's pretty slim in terms of the number of prospects where there's there's mutual interest. Um, mm-hmm. You know, Braden Platt. Uh, it's is ranked as the best player in the state by 24 seven sports, not by the composite. There's a, there's a lot of dis- disagreement, um, uh, kind of who the top five are, but there's a, there's a, there's a pretty clear, like top four or five. And however, however the services want to rank them among those guys is, is whatever. But I mean, a lot of people think Braden Platt's the best player in the state linebacker out of Yelm, 
did not have Washington in his top schools. So I think that, you know, the ships kind of sailed on that. I think the most realistic target for them of the top in-state guys probably is Jason Brown, the running back mm-hmm. at O'Day. And, you know, th- by no means is that like a slam dunk. I think he visited Michigan State recently and told 24-7 Sports um, that he might check out Washington and Oregon during the season, I want to say, or maybe unofficially. Um, I there's, there's another running back, Nate Frazier, out of modern day. Um, that they've been really high on, and they they felt like there was pretty strong mutual interest early on, uh, you know, between those two guys and just where they're at in their recruitment and where that mutual interest sits with each. I'm I'm not positive, you know, I don't know how that might end up impacting things down the road, but I just I don't think this is going to be a, a class that has many in-state guys, and I wouldn't put money on. Like if I had to bet, you know, I'd have to think about it. But if it were just if I had the option to bet or not, I, I wouldn't put money on on probably any of these guys landing at Washington necessarily. I'm not. That's not to say I think it will be zero. I just don't think that any of them are so sure that you'd be like, oh yeah, that kid, that kid's going to end up at UW. Like you know, chalk it up. Is that that seems weird to me? And maybe the sort of state boundaries matter less now. It's certainly more national. Like you have way more, you have way more programs, not just from the Big Ten, which has always had a little bit of a footprint in the area, but you have a, you have SEC. It, it's changed. It's changed even in the last ten years. Does it matter less now if they don't end up landing a commitment from a from a from a a, a kid in the state? It matters less if they can go into California and Arizona and Nevada and get guys who they think are better than the top prospects in Washington. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I think that Washington's coaching staff, whoever it is, not just this one, is always going to think that it, it, the most ideal scenario is all the top talent locally wants to stay home and would love to have them. But I just I don't get the sense that this staff is going to bend over backwards to convince kids who aren't necessarily super high on the hometown team that they need to stay home and fill up the roster with Washington kids when they feel like there are better prospects on the West Coast at, at their respective positions. And it's not like that's the case with every kid. Like, you know, I don't know how many linebackers on the West Coast there are better than Braden Platt. I think if there'd been... Mm-hmm mutual interest you know early on that that you know you probably would have seen that kind of develop a different way with that said i'd be remiss uh kind of running down some of the more interesting guys in this wave of commitments um Kamori house the linebacker from saint john bosco also i mean he looks like he's got every every athletic tool you talk to annie i know you want to see more speed at that position guys who can run Kamori house can really run um he's a sideline to sideline linebacker maybe just a touch undersized he's listed at 61 205 but you know they've they've had guys who've been all americans who have been that size at that position so um obviously uh as as good of a program as you can recruit from right i mean they were they were considered the the top program in the country last year or at least one of them the one another state title um they've had a ton of really good linebackers washington has one of them and coming in in this 2023 class, Devin Bryant went through the the spring and Raylan Goforth was, was at St. John Bosco back in the day. So a strong pedigree, especially at that position coming out of that program. And, and, um, he, another guy like 
hasn't played like a ton relative to probably most guys who are like ranked and recruited where he is uh, for a linebacker just because he was kind of banged up as a junior. Um, but, you know, he played some as a sophomore. Um, if he's healthy, he'll he'll be a, you know, he'll be their guy, right? He'll be a, he'll be a dude for them um, on their defense as a senior uh, at Bosco. So um think they're think they're really excited about him. They prior they'd been prioritizing him for a long time. I should be more excited than I was a week ago when I was trying to just say, "Hey, I don't really care." Like they've got 10 guys now, things are filling up. I should feel good about things, right? Yeah, I mean, look, these are the guys that they identified that they wanted to have on campus for this last big weekend and nine of them have committed. And and I think still a couple more to go who they feel really good about. So um, not from this weekend, but from the weekend before Dominic Kirks is a four-star edge rusher from Cleveland who is announcing his decision on Friday, Cleveland, Ohio. Yeah. His other visits were really? to Pittsburgh and Wisconsin. I want to say, wow, I I'm trying to think of the last, I'm not sure if I can identify a UW player from Ohio. Um, off the top of my head, Ohio. Yeah, I don't know. I'm going to, I'm going to have to go. Um, I'm going to have to go into the, uh, yeah, the media, the media guy. guy. I, 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 like will, I, I will for, track that uh, down for Keen Holtz and for Curly Reed and for the Parker twins. And <laughs> that's the thing, like this staff, I feel like anytime a staff that's got some connections elsewhere comes in, people are like, Oh yeah. Like they're going to fill up, you know, they're going to, they're going to load up with all these guys from, and it's like, no, you know, 90% of the, the, the signees are still going to be like, they know where their bread is buttered. They're still going to be on the West coast, but yes, you are going to see one, two, three, you know, here and there, some prospects from the Midwest, you know, maybe from, from Texas. You've seen some, like we just mentioned from the Detroit area, from Louisiana, there are going to be some, some kind of more one-off connections because of where Courtney Morgan has worked and, you know, where, Eric Schmidt and 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 uh and okay Brechterfield have worked and um Kalen DeBoer, you know, obviously. It it's also because kids go more places. It's because yeah, definitely things I mean things are more fluid now. You, the idea that kids have spent summers, plural, going to different camps around the country, like it's it's a less recruiting is less regional now. Like there's just no doubt about that. Um I'm don't consider myself that much of an old man, but when I covered high school sports, which is like late nineties, early two thousands, it, it was significantly more regional than it is now. Like there's, there's just no doubt about that. So in the same way, kind of looking at it and saying, well, are they really going to have a class where they, they don't, they don't have a recruit from the, from a, a Washington state high school. Well, they've also got a, a kid that they're interested in from Cleveland, Ohio, which would have never been, really a realistic if it happened it would have been a series of sort of fluke connections that would make that that occur and i i feel like it's just less regional now yeah and i think you know it's always been the challenge is getting them to campus for an unofficial visit and that's kind of what courtney morgan told me the first time i talked with him and i think that was sort of their their strategy at michigan too when he was there was that if you can get a kid from outside the footprint to pay his own way to come check out campus and, and maybe even to do it twice, 
maybe maybe once as a junior and then maybe they come check out their your your spring game or something like that um that's the indicator that like okay it's it's going to be worth the resources to pursue this kid because he was interested enough in this school up way up in Seattle Washington way outside the world he's grown up in to to come check it out and you know now now the school knows that you know that's somebody who's at least on the radar enough where you know University of Washington can't just go into Florida and start throwing offers around right just can't just like send its coaches with their purple polo shirts with a w on it like that's going to resonate you know like it like some other schools could in that region and and like washington does in this region but you know it's there's there's got to be a there's got to be some level of mutual interest established first before you're gonna like really go all in on recruiting the kid from detroit from louisiana from cleveland do you remember when uw had at God, this might be you. This might, you might be too young to remember. Where they got the three kids from the Florida high school? I, re- I mean, I wasn't paying as close of attention to recruiting as I do were now. You, but yeah, yeah. Were, were you a teenager? Where Where are you in two thousand two thousand one? That was the two thousand one recruiting class. So when they signed, I was still thirteen. <laughs> such an old man. I'm such an old man. <laughs> was. Because I think it went John Anderson and then Rich Alexis and then Charles Frederick. And Alexis turned out to be a really big time running back that I, I think people didn't know how good he was coming out of high school. John Anderson was a great kicker, but he's a kicker, scholarship kicker. And and then they landed Charles Frederick, who was regarded along with Reggie Williams. And they were considered two of the three or four best wide receiver prospects in that yeah. recruiting class. Um, and and Charles... Frederick didn't have as great of a college career as a lot of people expected, but he's a really fun player to watch. And I think he ended up playing some linebacker in, in arena league football, but it was the weirdest thing that you had this pipeline of these three kids coming from this high school in Florida. It was hilarious. Um, I see five all time UW Letterman whose hometown is listed as being in Ohio. Really? Uh, You've oh, got you, you, you sleuth of a researcher. You were doing this in the background. You've got end Fritz Apking. You remember him, right? He, he lettered in 49 and 50. Do not recall Fritz. I'm sure he was a lovely fellow. <laughs> uh, Eddie Jackson, a receiver from Columbus, Ohio, lettered in 2002. Don't remember Eddie Jackson. Looks like he appeared in six games. Um, James Kirkpatrick was a center from Winterville, Ohio, who lettered in 82, 83, and 84. So he was around for some good times. So he's a solid player that that came here in Roseville, Ohio. What was his name again? Uh, Winterville, Ohio. James Kirkpatrick was a center. Um, And then Joe Tabor, Tabor, was a linebacker from Niles, Ohio, lettered in 72 and 73. Um, and then, of course, uh, everyone knows Fran Windust, a guard from Dayton, Ohio, who lettered in 1931, 32, and 34. So out of all those guys, the one person I would say is that like Kirkpatrick is somebody that I could have recalled. I could have recalled. All the other ones were outside a frame of reference for me, so I don't feel bad about not having known who they were. From Kirkpatrick to Kirk's? perhaps <laughs> we'll see should we bring in our guest 
Yeah. We don't often have guests, but when we do, we, we make sure that they are uh, inordinately entertaining. Uh, and, and our next guest certainly fits that. He is Ryan Nanny of the Shutdown Full Cast and uh, various college football and pro football enterprises over the years. Ryan, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Um, you should know my six-year-old insists that I'm very boring, so she would she would quibble with your description. But I think she does that just to make me feel bad. So that yeah, I I would think so too. I I, I enjoyed. You have one of the best bios, and it's from one of your your previous iterations, one of your previous stops. It says Ryan Danny writes about college and professional football without having played either, which makes him an expert on both and a true American. And I, I think I think that's that's a motto like all sports writers could get behind. Yeah, um, I I try to embrace that I know nothing, and therefore I can speak as loudly and as confidently as I would like to. I uh, I found another one of your past bios where you describe yourself as formerly a a good but not amazing attorney. Correct. What what was it you think that made you a good attorney, and what would have made you an amazing attorney? Um, let's see. I was good in that I knew when I was over my skis. Like, I was not just sort of mm. like, this will be fine. I, I knew when to ask for help. And I knew when I didn't know what I didn't know. Uh, what would have made me an amazing attorney, I suppose, would have been better dedicated work ethic. Like, I was go- I was writing under the pseudonym about college football nonsense, and I was on Twitter, and like... That sounds like work, work ethic to me. I mean, it, it was just maybe not the work ethic that my employers were hoping to see, is all. Now, <laughs> see, I know enough. Now, I'm going to come off as slightly a stalker because this, this, this comes from your LinkedIn bio, okay, which I'm now following you on LinkedIn. Excellent. <laughs> because you are assistant general counsel for the New York City Department of Investigation, yeah. which does not sound like a job that someone who is only okay has. Um. It is a title that sounds a little fancier than it is. It it it, it was like a real job. I'm not going to mm-hmm. downplay it, but it's not like oh, I was the second in line. To, to the commissioner would call me and be like, "What are we doing about?" It? Like it was lower on the totem pole than that. Um, you didn't but, have but, a bat yeah. phone. No, 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 no. Uh, but but no, that was that was real. Yeah, I probably underplay how decent i was as an attorney but it was i ultimately i was just like not super super passionate about it and i suspect if you want to be really good at it you do have to be like oh this is the most important thing in the world to me and i just never got there well i would like to lean into some of your uh attorneying experience please if i was going to try to put together a case for a criminal investigation of former Pac-12 commissioner Larry Scott (laughs) (laughs) for various financial malfeasance, idiocy, for for killing my conference, Mm -hmm. for killing, Mm -hmm. murdering the... the, the, It's not dead yet. It's not dead yet. felonious negligence. Yeah. Where would I start? Um, I think so. So putting on my old investigator hat, I would go back to the original headquarters deal. The, the HQ was in San Francisco, if I remember correctly. The new one was. The old yes. one was in Walnut Creek, which right. is a suburb of it's East Bay, it's, but it's not San Francisco. Right, right. So I would look at the San Francisco deal specifically, and I would say, like, okay, in any transaction where you've got a lot of money going towards a real estate deal, you're looking for kickbacks. You're looking to say, like, what happened? Like, 
did Larry Scott pay some get to make an arrangement with some realtor that was like, "All right, we're you're going to find us this very expensive office office space and you're going to kick me back 5%." And that's how this is this is how this is going to work out for me because at no point even I was thinking about this the other day. Larry Scott's tenure I think was looked at very differently over time. There were times when people were sort of like, this is, he, this is an innovative approach. He is doing things that other conferences aren't doing. One thing that nobody ever was like, this makes sense and we think this is smart, was getting that particular office. Like, to what end? Mm-hmm. To what possible end other than creating a huge financial suck on the conference? Well, when you've got a chance to move to downtown San Francisco and all of the high-end media properties and television networks that are... He- oh, wait. No, there's none of that. There's there's no reason to move into one of the most expensive real estate markets in the country. I will say, not in defense of Larry Scott, but just in, in an observation of fact. Uh, it was a really cool office. I, I believe you. It was, it was sweet. I believe it was, you. It was, it was pretty impressive. I believe... But, like, the SEC network is based out of Charlotte. A state where this, the conference doesn't even have any member institutions. Yeah, that's true. ESPN's uh, in Bristol. It's not yeah, in New York City. Yeah, and ES, ESPN is just in Bristol because when they originally built that campus, it was like, oh, we can put up a ton of huge satellite dishes here to be like the idea that you needed to have your conference headquarters, your network headquarters, rather, in the fanciest city, like the the tech forward city. It's just like, that's not, are, are, is this going to become a tourist destination? Are people going on honeymoon and saying, oh, one thing we got to do while we're in San Francisco is swing by the Pac-12 <laughs> network and see what's going on. In the financial district. <laughs> I enjoy that uh, as a term of their lease, they, they had to return the property to as is condition or to, yeah. to the same condition as they took it over and it cost yeah. them $10 million to do I, that. Like what, what do you think? I, I would have just lost the security deposit at that point. Yeah. What was the right? deposit? Because <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> they, okay. man, they drilled holes in walls and through floors to run cables. And I don't even know how, how you start. Yeah. yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. There's That's, I mean, any anybody who's had a college apartment can tell you, like, yeah, just kiss the g- deposit goodbye. Don't repaint. That's silly. Yeah. There's a fantastic story about Carlos Boozer renting out his house in L.A. To Prince? To Prince. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And showing up and being like, what the hell happened to my house? And Prince is like, don't worry, I'll put it back. And he did. And also, here's a million dollars. I think yes. he gave him, he yes. gave him, it's like a million dollars cash just as like a good faith, like, here, have some money. Sorry, sorry that you showed up and I startled you. Here's a million dollars type Prince, of thing. Prince would have been a great Pac-12 commissioner. <laughs> yeah. It would, wouldn't have been any worse. We're talking to, to Ryan Nanny, part of Shutdown Fullcast, uh, which is a podcast that I, I enjoy a great deal. Thank you. Um, Ryan, what do you make of, I mean, as a Pac-12 fan and someone I went to UW, I'm a UW fan, what's happening right now in the, the machinations, USC and UCLA leaving? Um, what's your perspective on this consolidation that's gone on? I mean, from like a very zoomed out perspective, it definitely fits the weird history of the conference. Like this is a conference that 
dissolved and then came back together. The story of like how Arizona and Arizona State join. Like, th- there's enough weirdness where it sort of like fits it from an interesting historical perspective. I think the hardest part from a neutral perspective is the uncertainty at this point. Because if it was just USC and UCLA are leaving and now we're moving forward and like we're all good. I think everybody could live with that. I think it would be not dissimilar to what's happening in the Big 12 where it's sort of saying, okay, the two ti- the two Titans are leaving. We have these other four schools that we're bringing in. There, nobody's pretending like, oh, this will fill that void completely, but it sort of creates some certainty. And instead, it feels like every two weeks, it's uh, like, well, what did the Arizona president say? about this, that, or the other, and what's going on with San Diego State. And there's, I, I think everybody involved, whether you have a stake in this or not, would like things to just get settled at some point, because what it reminds me of is the old Big East, where you just sort of see like that slow bleed, and it's like, well, maybe we're going to bring Villanova in, and maybe this, and, and it ultimately doesn't get you anywhere. You're just spinning your wheels. Whether or not you know, Washington and Oregon are also going to leave or new schools are going to, whatever. I think at some point the, the conference needs to sort of lay out like, this is the plan. This is what's going to happen over the next 18, 24 months. You maybe can't predict it farther out than that, but giving some certainty to what, what the PAC 12 is would probably go a long way to make everybody feel better about it. So because I cover Washington, I've been I've been kind of fascinated by the idea of Washington's place in the world for a long time. Yeah. And the expansion and realignment cycle that we're in has kind of accelerated a lot of that talk. And I feel like there's a big portion of Washington's fan base that still can remember very fondly the Don James era, the undefeated season in 91 and yeah. three straight Rose Bowls and... Sports Illustrated saying that Washington's head coach is the best coach in the country and um, I think have maybe a little bit more of a difficult time processing that like in most of the country people don't think about Washington at all Mm -hmm. like they've under Chris Peterson expanded their recruiting into Texas more and I would ask the kids they got I mean the kids who agreed to come to Washington from Texas I'd like to ask each of them what did you know about Washington? What was your concept of UW? And almost like to a man, it was, I knew nothing about them. Right. I, I knew vaguely that it was in the state that's way out west, and that's it. Right. And those are the kids that got to come there. So mm-hmm. I'm, I'm curious, as someone who co-hosts a, a national college football podcast, you look at the game nationally, where does Washington kind of reside in your, in your mind? And like kind of what, what tier do you sort of place them in when you think about teams on a national scale? Um, I think Washington probably fits into a, like, I'm trying to think of, it's hard to think of a good corollary for them. Like, NC State feels like it in some regards, but it doesn't in others. Uh, there are like a handful of Big 12 programs that you could maybe fit. But they do, I agree that they do kind of get lost in the shuffle. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that for, I don't know, maybe a decade of formative college football for people who are fans now and and to some extent uh you know student athletes who are coming up the dominant programs not just on the field but sort of from a media perspective were Oregon and USC 
and they sort of sucked up all the oxygen. Like, even I think, you know, Stanford had a run of, you know, a bunch of uh, Heisman runners up and went to the Rose Bowl. You know, they, they, had a, they had a great sort of string of success. None of that really feels like it has stuck in a way that is like, oh, people think about Stanford. Like, you know, mm-hmm. David Shaw retires last year and it's just sort of like, oh, right, he was still at Stanford. And I don't think Washington's quite in that space because I think that has more to do with like what Stanford is interested in from athletics, what the fan base is interested in, et cetera, et cetera. But I think Washington needs something that is like, it feels, it feels silly to say like a statement of some sort, but I, I think they do need something that can sort of like punch through to the national consciousness, whether it's like, a big bowl game win, whether it's a a big non-conference win, whether it is just like uh, tearing through the conference uh, at some at some point, I I think they do need something that sort of like cements them as oh we are not and also ran we are not the team that you remember is in the Pac-12 but is not one of the first first four teams that you mentioned because otherwise because right now it's just sort of like. It's amorphous is the best way to describe it. They don't. I don't think they have like a really solidified national profile right now. Have you been to Husky Stadium? No. I would love to go. I've heard really good things about it. Are you aware that that they refer to it as the greatest setting in college football? I yes, I am. Yes. <laughs> do, like you tell me how. Uh, what if I'm going on TripAdvisor and I'm getting uh-huh. an honest review of that slogan? What like what do you think we're looking at? Of, um, of the of the slogan or of the view, like the both. actual. Let's say let's say both. If that's the selling point, do you think like it lives up to it? I think okay. the the top line takeaway is it it is an objectively fantastic setting. Yeah. Um, I I think a lot of people roll their eyes at the fact that the school markets it as, as such. Not okay. not just a lot of people. Me. <laughs> I, I think I think that it makes our school come across like the jackass who tells everybody in the neighborhood about how nice his yard is. Mm. Like, oh, I'm going with this type of grass this mm. year, and this is what I'm doing. Like, I think it's obnoxious. I, I really, and I, I actually, I've got it in the group of guys that I have season tickets with. I, I was complaining about it, and I was told to shut up um, on it on group text <laughs> that so I need to stop minority. talking about it. Yeah, I am. It's possible that I am. Maybe I'm the only one with a hint of self-awareness in the entire yeah. fan base. Well, the I think part of the problem with it is that it it's like the pitch for a golf course and not a football. St- like, you know, yeah. we have multiple death valleys and we have countless stadiums that are, you know, Seattle's Pro Stadium is constantly talking about how loud it is. At Wisconsin, you have jump around. At Nebraska, you have the sellout streak, which isn't real, but it doesn't matter because people talk about it like it's real. And I think it's incongruous on a sport that is built on you're going to come here and watch something like emotionally electrifying. It's weird to pair that with. And the view is beautiful. Like, that's not why people go to college football games. It's why it is why reporters go to the Rose Bowl. Mm-hmm. But the Rose Bowl, like nobody ever says, "Oh, I love going to UCLA home games because the Rose Bowl is beautiful." Because nobody goes to UCLA home games. Danny nobody loves jump around too. 
<laughs> I'm not a not a huge fan of jump around. Not a huge fan of jump around. I can't wait to see what UCLA Illinois is going to draw in the Rose oh Bowl. Though. Like that's oh that's God. that's very exciting for me. I hope they bring Ron Zuck to celebrate the <laughs> previous Rose Bowl appearance. Well, the person who set this interview up is Ian McFarland. Now. Ian has been a longtime supporter of Say Who Say Pod. He's a big fan of college football content in general, and he's someone well, he's someone you should talk to if you're looking for opportunities or ways to expand sales opportunities at no risk to you. You can check him out at ipmcfarland.com. That's Ian McFarland. And his only request this week was that instead of asking a question to Christian Capel or myself, that he get to ask a question to Ryan. So here goes. I've tried to record this like seven times today. Usually I can get it on the first or second take without a child coming in or my outlook dinging, but we're just going to make it short and sweet. This is a question for Ryan. Ryan, thanks for joining the show. I am curious what the rest of the country is laughing at Washington for. We may not matter enough for college football Twitter to have cliched jokes about, about us. But there's got to be something everybody is pointing and laughing at us for. And I know that Washington fans tend to take themselves way, way, way too seriously. So why don't you knock us down a peg? I've got a lifetime of self-consciousness that needs applying. So please give it some direction. Thanks for joining the show. Guys, have a great week. We'll talk to you all soon. Somebody to choose from here. Um... I think the one that stands out to me most, and I apologize for even uttering these two words, is Ty Willingham. Like, <laughs> it's not just it's not just what happened on the field there. It's that if memory serves, he is now like an assistant golf coach. I think at Stanford, or yes. he was. He was briefly, yeah. Like that's that, that tells a lot. Like you know, obviously coaches go places and it doesn't work out. And they usually resurface. You know, like Derek Dooley didn't work out at Tennessee. But he re- he was with the Cowboys for a while, and he you know he bounces around. He stayed in the industry. That Ty Willingham went to YouTube, went winless, and was like, "Well, time to switch sports completely." <laughs> is a real is a real is a real delight. I mean, the other one. I live in Nashville, so um, I can tell you while I have seen any number of curious Titans jerseys over my few years here. Never seen a Jake Locker anything. Never seen any <laughs> acknowledgement that Jake Locker even existed in the city of Nashville. So uh, I think between those two, those are the two real high water marks for what the hell you dub. What the hell is going on? In a, in a true testament to how college football operates, uh, Tyrone Willingham was on the college football playoff selection committee. That's right. Yes, he was. Oh, my God. And Todd also- Turner operates a search firm. <laughs> no is that is that true yes yes how uh, is that possible did he was responsible because he was at vanderbilt sports, before collegiate sports associates oh god Grif- ah. like for for those of us who are not actively grifting we're missing out like there's so <laughs> much grift opportunity out there and we're missing out by not seizing upon it it is true well you can follow ryan uh, on Twitter at Celebrity Hot Tub. 
Uh, you can listen to him on the Shutdown Fullcast, uh, Spencer Hall, as well as Jason Kirk. It's, it's a really great show. He is on a mission to appear on as many podcasts as possible. Have you cracked? Are you above 200? Where, where are you at? No, 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 no. I think right now we're at, uh, there are a couple that are still getting edited. Uh, we're at like 75. So That's I'm trending great. towards 150 for the year, which if I say that to my wife, she'll be like, Wow, thanks for not doing thanks for spending all that time not doing other things that would have been helpful to our lives. So <laughs> no, you're like that. it's exposure, it's free mm-hmm. marketing, free it's, promo. Yes, I'm networking. That's what's happening here. Uh Ryan, it's been awesome to talk to you. And Thank we're you for really grateful me. for you spending the time. Sure thanks, fun. Ryan. Thanks. Were you expecting him to uh to pull Tyron Willingham out there? No, it hurt. <laughs> <laughs> it's I always tend to then go overboard to explain how much I dislike Tyrone Willingham. Um, and I, I thought that there I just should sit in the discomfort of that, of like, ah, yeah, the national impression was uh, Tyrone Willingham came to Washington. It, it's hard to describe the level to which he reduced UW. Um, and I, I think Washington has largely recovered but maybe that still lurks in the background in the collective consciousness of, of national college football fans. Clearly it does. Cause Ryan brought it up. I feel like in college football's changes, maybe it doesn't apply anymore, but like the Tyron Willingham era might be the strongest Testament there could possibly be to Washington's brand on the recruiting trail because he somehow recruited like a number of NFL players to this program that had not won anything in in years and it's not like it's not because he was out there you know beating the recruiting trail and outworking everybody so i have a theory on that and my theory is is that tyrone willingham is a really attractive coach for a certain type of student athlete and i think that tyrone willingham resonates with parents and really strongly self-motivated, like driven people in a way that worked really well at Stanford. Like that that's that the the kind of players and prospects that respond really well to that are kind of the, the kind of guys that can get into Stanford. And it's it's a different thing at UW. And that's not to say it's like a lesser institution or anything like that, but you have to recruit the I would say one of the biggest indicators of Tyrone Willingham's, like why he was so poorly suited was what happened with some of those Bellevue kids and that he just like EJ Savannah and ended up and, and, and Ooh. maybe some, <laughs> what well, maybe some of those kids would have been such like, That's it's possible EJ, by the way. No, I mean, he would, he wouldn't acknowledge him and hasty and all the things that were happening. I, I want to, it's possible that it wouldn't have worked out for those guys with any coach. But I also feel that the way Tyrone coached them and the way he dealt with his players alienated and, and like kind of, he just cut loose of so many guys because he was like, I'm not going to, and it's not even coddling. I'm not going to pay attention to you unless you force me to by how incredibly outstanding you are as both a player and a man. And I, it just, yeah, I, I think you needed to have a different. I don't think that approach would ever work at Washington, even if he'd been like a more personally endearing and not such a gruff guy. You think about who was on that 2008 roster. 
and you know obviously like Jake Locker was injured so that's that's the big the big caveat there but Jake Locker Donald Butler Mason Foster Daniel Teo Nesheim, yep. and they were true they were true freshmen but Chris Polk Jermaine Curse there were some players like they, they there were guys on the team that yes. year who wound up being like absolutely central and formative to Steve Sarkeesian getting the program at least back off the mat his first couple of seasons. When Paul Wolf, and if you contrast like what Paul Wolf did with that Washington State team, like Washington State's record was reflective of the level of talent that was on that team. And, and I don't think I'm being that mean about that or anything. Washington's record was reflective of the, the coaching job that Tyrone Willingham did, not the talent that was there. Like they had dudes and those dudes did not want to play for him. Like that that's just very, very clear to me. And well, maybe that's not even fair. Cause like I know Donald Butler a little bit. And Donald Butler really liked playing for Tyrone and kind of thought Tyrone got a really bad rap. Most of the players did not like playing for Tyrone Willingham. And I don't think he came close to getting the most out of that team. No. Um Alameda Tamu was on that team also. Was also a true God. freshman. That yeah. was like because I remember that the 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 2008 recruiting class was was pretty good, especially in state. I mean, it just had a number of guys who people were really excited about getting. Chris Polk was a big get for them, so like it was it's it's I, like really strange to just look back and think like yeah, it was just an absolute disaster season. Oh and twelve, and and not like just a disaster record. Like you, they were a really bad team. Just a genuinely awful. awful football team. But they had a bunch of individual players who end up being really good college football players. Yeah. I mean, I think Donald Butler's like a third-round pick. Teo Nesheim was, I think, a fourth-round pick. Like, you had dudes that were drafted. Like, that was Teo their Nesheim record. left as the all-time sacks leader. Oh, God. It was such a brutal. That loss at Cal. I mean, there are a lot of really bad ones, but that loss at Cal was the most mailed-in, horrendous, like, it was right down to the fact that Tyrone Willingham tried to leave without doing post-game interviews after that game. Just the perfect summary of how phoned in that last year a coaching job was by him. Yeah. <laughs> what do you want me to do, Bob? Get up and scream and shout? Bob Condota, I don't care what you do. No, I don't care what you do. Uh, job at best is still running, by the way. Uh- <laughs> he was an incredible college football player to watch. Javid yeah, Best was had some. They had some just dynamite running backs, didn't they, under Tedford? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the fighting Tedfords. Well, I think uh, I think when we sit down to record next week, we'll be talking about some uh, some more commitments. Might have to. We'll, we might have to schedule around the Fourth of July. Isn't, isn't that the, the Fourth is? The fourth is on a Tuesday. Tuesday. Okay. Nope. So we're good. Um, see, this is just, you know, I'm so focused on today, Danny. I can't be expected. To <laughs> That's how you have to be, right? Look at next week's calendar. We, we take it one podcast at a time. That's right. We, we, I think we went one or no on this podcast. <laughs> Faceless opponent. <laughs> we'll talk to you next week.